Carton. Blair. Okay, buddy. Big episode. Big episode. What number are we on? What is it? Ah, Carton, it's 27. 27. I'm glad you said that. I would have uh, guessed 26. And I know that's probably exactly what I said last time, but that's, you know, no way off. (laughs) You know, there's like, okay, so in anniversaries, the 25th anniversary anniversary is, what is that? Is that the paper? uh No, I don't know. (laughs) Metal. Uh, My wife's going to carry aluminum. aluminum. There's diamond. There's gold. Mine have all been cards up to this point. Platinum, (laughs) copper, zinc, chromate. Oh, honey, it's another card anniversary. (laughs) Here you go. I actually got banned from making homemade cards for my wife. Oh, did you really? I can well, yeah, you know, why. I mean, I, I was a cartoonist, right? And an artist. And so oh, okay. I, I always okay, okay. thought, well, I'll save 375. That. I'm sorry, but Hallmark is gouging us. They're taking oh, they advantage are. of our, they, they of our emotions. Are. Okay. Right. They, yeah. they shame us into, you know, getting to their gunboat tactics of buying their cards. I so I circumvented agree. that and I just, you know, a little creativity on my own, some construction paper, Good some crayons. I, yeah. You know, and well, you were banned, banned because it. of the, the content, or you're banned because of <laughs> because you said, "Okay, this is I, too I don't what? know. I think it was, <laughs> all of I the above. Was, I think it was the fact that every time I would try to give her coupon books, you know, yeah. like I would give her a coupon book yes. that would allow yeah. that would give yeah. me like a back scratch or a back oh, rub, and <laughs> pretty, somehow they just didn't. <laughs> it didn't work didn't out. Here you go. Here's yeah, a coupon for wasn't. you giving me a back rub. <laughs> This is going to work great. And you're welcome, by the way. Redeemable anytime, anyplace. That's oh, all I yeah. say. That is great. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm literally banned from homemade cards. So I, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm regulated to have to buy at the store like everybody else. Well, there's capitalism for you at its finest, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Uh, so uh, episode 27. How, how many followers? Pondering underscore monkeys. What do you think? <sighs> And, you know, we haven't hit, we need to get some more um, promotion out there. I will say that. So the jump hasn't been huge by any means. Okay. All right. I'm going to say 111. Oh, hey, 110. Man, that was close. That was actually good for you. That was a great guess. 110. 110. 110. We we are a, we're a bootstrapping entity here, Cardin. We're, we're grassroots. Okay. We are. So that's Those checks just keep on flowing in from Instagram. (laughs) I'll tell you what, I got a brand new pair of shoes or yeah. half one or a quarter of a one pair or a, yeah. I don't know. The, yeah. the life of an influencer yeah uh, i saw i too. saw speaking of an influencer so yeah. uh my son sayer is home from college right so yes. and we're looking at he, he likes tiktok and youtube and stuff yeah. he showed yeah. me this guy on youtube i i don't know how old the guy is i'm gonna guess he's 23 24 okay yeah yeah and I believe he's got around 7 million followers. Um, and uh-huh. yeah. he just moved into a mansion yes, that I'm pretty yeah. sure was paid for in full by his YouTube royalties. I can't even believe that. Isn't that, isn't that so crazy? If you, were, if you were to go back in time, even 30 years ago, and kind of say that exact same thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Somebody. No, no. He puts videos on the internet and has followers and they pay him for him. Like TV, not, well, and you're like, well, okay, really. but but what does he do for a job? He no, that's what he people. Does. Yeah, that's, he, influ- he influences people. He makes them want to put ten trampolines on top of each other and jump into <laughs> his pool. That's the that's the video I saw. He, he okay, literally well. stacked eleven trampolines on top of one another in his backyard. Yeah. Okay, yeah. not many people have a backyard big enough to fit eleven trampolines. He does. Yes. and there was an there was an overly deep pool. I'm guessing fifteen to eighteen feet deep. Yeah. And him and his buddies, okay, had nothing better to do but stack all the trampolines and then jump off into his pool. Okay. And, 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 this, and of this, course, is what, this is what I hate to say. I'm watching that video. 
I mean, honestly, this is I've been influenced because I'm I'm gonna watch that. Even if it's just for a second to be like, oh, this is so dumb. Guess what? You got me. I'm watching. I might not follow what I'm watching. Yeah, I know. Well, well, back in reality, Carden, where you and yes. I live. Yes. Um so so episode 27, we have a very special guest tonight, Carden. Yes, we certainly do. We do. I'm very excited about this. This is actually... I am, uh, I am uh, too. I'm very, very excited. Because this uh, topic it affects us all so much. So who who we have on is uh, Jesse Cook. He's a clinical psychology PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His expertise is on sleep tracking technology, disorders of excess daytime sleepiness, also called... Let's see if I can do it. Hypersolomonolence. Nope, I screwed it up, but that's okay. He'll he'll correct me. And intersection between sleep and mental and physical health. So, Jesse, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Cardin and Blair, uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I was comfortable just being a listener to that bantering. It was fantastic. <laughs> and uh, I will say I feel very privileged to be the 27th episode um, as a music uh, connoisseur. I've always had an affinity for the 27 Club, uh, the uh, Amy Winehouse, the, the oh, Jimi yeah. Hendrix, oh, the yes. Uh, yes. Brian Jones, yes. Janis Joplin, and, and my favorite, Jim Morrison. So I feel that, um, you know, privileged, and, it, and it's not a coincidence that I am uh, able to assist to this podcast on that episode number. And uh, I think you did a fantastic job, Cardin, trying to. Uh, enunciate hypersomnolence. It's a very challenging word and not one <laughs> oh, that is at yes. the forefront of our vernacular. So good job there. Oh, I appreciate that. But you just spit it off with such ease. I had to mm-hmm. literally look at every single syllable on that one and, and try to, and I, I rehearsed a little bit. Clearly didn't work. But uh, but anyways, uh, Jesse, thank you so much for, for being here. Could you um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and about your, your research? Absolutely. So um, as Cardin uh, appropriate outline. My, my name is Jesse Cook. I'm uh, currently a fifth year clinical psychology doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, my sleep career actually started at the University of Arizona um, back in 2011. I was a, um, I guess a good way to describe as a hippie undergrad. And I was very interested in, in um, sleep and, and dreams. And I was also really interested in uh, having classes that didn't fall on Monday and Friday. Um, so I signed up for a sleep and sleep disorders class taught by Dr. Richard Bootson, who, who recently passed away. Um, and it fit my desires to have a Tuesday, Thursday schedule. But uh, it really opened my eyes to what sleep is and the import of sleep. Uh, and so I joined uh, Dr. Bootson's lab that summer and spent the next year kind of getting my foundation of sleep research before moving out to the university or before moving out to Madison uh, to join Dr. David Plant's lab um, to do research on what I do now. And uh, Dr. Plant's actually my primary mentor in life. um, And we do research that looks at um, persons who experience excessive daytime sleepiness, um, which can be broadly classified as hypersomnolence. Uh, but these people don't actually have a reason for their daytime sleepiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are a couple different diagnostic labels for this. One is called idiopathic hypersomnia, and the other is called hypersomnolence disorder. And it, it depends on uh, the uh, nosology you're using to classify, 
but basically it maps onto the same thing is these people are really, really, really sleepy and often sleeping upwards of 11 hours across a 24 hour period. And yet they're not restored by their sleep and what's going on. Um, so that's basically what my population or, or types of people that I research um, are. But my research is, is broadly focused on improving the clinical care for these people. So a lot of my research focuses on how we might have better diagnostic criteria or identifying biomarkers or mm. neurophysiological signatures. Um, and then downstream, um, can we have better treatments? Because right now our treatment options are very limited, um, mostly focused on managing these conditions through pharmacological aid. Uh, and I'm more about kind of reversing uh, disease and, and hopefully allowing people to return to their normal state. Um, and so that's, that's basically where I'm at right now. Um, and hopefully uh, with the blessing of my my mentoring committee they'll allow me to achieve my phd in the coming year or so uh and then i'll be able to to actually get paid for my research <laughs> <laughs> that's a, I, I, you know i'm fascinated by your description of that so you know the first thing i that came to my mind was in in your research for this specific um issue that people are having are you noticing that this is a a, a psychological issue or a physiological issue that is a, a phenomenal comment. How much time do we have? Can we make this a 10-part episode? <laughs> yeah, most certainly. Yeah, part one. <laughs> so it's, it's really challenging. Um, and there's a – so we have these mood disorders. Uh, depression, bipolar disorder are kind of your prominent mood disorders. And um, hypersomnolence, so the excessive daytime sleepiness, often with prolonged sleep duration, is very much a – comorbid or common occurrence in persons that ex have mood disorders. And so it's it's unclear sometimes if these are driven by psychological um, beliefs or certain behaviors that protect uh, someone's identity in some ways, or if they manifest and develop because of certain psychological situations. So for instance, um, I have this hypothesis that Many people with unexplained, uh, we'll say, excessive daytime sleepiness or hypersomnolence develop this condition because they experience um, adversity or um, social issues when they're younger in early adolescence and then may take to the bed as a place of refuge or safety. Mm -hmm. And so the bed, bed becomes a place of, of harbor instead of a place of sleep and restoration. And so they start spending much longer periods in time and developing this relationship with the bed that it's a very warm, inviting place. And then eventually that manifests into spending upwards of 11 hours actually sleeping. Mm. And I generally believe that the biology adapts. So your energy levels will probably drop, um, which we see in these people. Uh, your ability to be motivated to go exercise or things like that drops. Um, so ultimately, it's intimately linked with the psychological angle, and there's still constant debate in the field whether people who are diagnosed with, say, major depressive disorder can also be comorbidly diagnosed with hypersomnolence disorder or idiopathic hypersomnia. Um, those more in the sleep medicine side of things versus um, the psychotherapy side of things um, will argue 
that the disorders uh, cannot exist comorbidly and that when people experience a psychological disorder, that explains their hypersomnolence. Mm. But those more in the psychological field will often argue the exact opposite, that these two things can manifest differentially. Mm-hmm. And I kind of land in the middle where I think for some of these people, it's definitely driven by the psychological ailment and can be fully explained by it. And for some of these people, it's two different distinct things. Mm-hmm. And our job now in science is to try and tease apart the differences and then hopefully allow the development of novel treatments that can be personalized to the types of situations that we're presented with, whether it's a combined depression and hypersomnolence, or if it's a depression driving the hypersomnolence. So, so Jesse, you're, you're saying that these people are going to sleep up to or in excess of 11 hours, correct? Yeah, that's actually the diagnostic criteria in the International Classifications of Sleep Disorders 3rd Edition um, is the 660 minutes of total sleep time across a 24-hour window. So um, I've worked with many of these people, and they often eclipse that in a single sleep episode. Um, But sometimes it's a nine hours of a main nocturnal sleep period supplemented with two two two-hour naps across the day as well. Okay. So, so my question is what happens when the light goes out, right? What happens when they close their eyes? Cause we, we know that in normal sleep patterns, there's this transition into very various stages of sleep. What are you guys seeing with these people once they go to sleep? That's a phenomenal question. Uh, and one that, that definitely needs more research. Um, we published a study Uh, recently uh, in the sleep journal um, that uh, evidenced altered slow wave activity in persons who experience unexplained hypersomnolence. Mm. Um, So what we saw was these bilateral, meaning on both sides of the brain, we saw a reduction in something known as slow wave activity. Um, And I know you recently had on Dr. Zadra, so I'm unsure for the listeners how deep they got into actual sleep architecture or the different stages of sleep, but slow wave activity um, is generally conceived as the most restorative aspect of your sleep. Mm. These slow waves that occur, your, your, the electrophysiology of your brain is slowing down. Uh, and there's many reasons this is occurring and, and many functions that it serves. Um, but we've seen this in these populations and we saw it in the regions of the brain that were central uh, central parietal, uh, which was a bit different than some of the limited existing literature that was um, already present when we did the study. Um, but we do believe that this has um, significant impact and, and can explain some of the symptoms that the individuals are experiencing when it comes to memory issues or absence of vigilance or attention during the day or lethargic motor skills, um, as some of the reductions actually mapped onto motor cortexes of the brain. Mm. Um, So it makes sense in some ways that these reductions exist, um, given what we know about the import of slow waves. Uh, And again, we could have a 10-part series on the import of slow waves, and I'm not the expertise (laughs) to have on, but I can provide (laughs) suggestions. 
But this is a fundamental change in our electrophysiology and it serves multitudes of purposes. Um, so that stood out. It was one of those eureka moments. Mm-hmm. And so now it becomes, what do you do with it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's, it's a marker. It doesn't necessarily indicate the causality of the condition. It just indicates a difference. And so we need more research to understand why that deficiency has arose. And then at the same time, how can we alter that to bring it back up to what, quote unquote, a healthy individual would have in our society and see if that also reverses the symptoms at that point? Yeah. And and so that brings up two interesting questions that I have. Um, One is, so what does treatment look like for this condition? Have you been um, gone into that and have you seen any success with um, introduction? I mean, how do these people respond to caffeine even? have has, has that been a part of research or anything like that? So at this time, treatment, for lack of a better term, is modestly effective and limited. Um, and this is kind of going to lead me into a bit of a... a a rabbit hole in some ways. So I apologize for where this leads, but it may be for the best. Um, many people at this time or in our society are, are very aware of insomnia. It's a very common sleep complaint um, that affects just about everyone at some point in their life, whether it's acute or chronic. And the gold standard treatment for insomnia is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Oftentimes medication is needed to maybe stabilize an individual, but to actually appropriately address insomnia, cognitive behavioral therapy is the gold standard. And as a psychologist, I'm really happy about that because I'm not someone that gets excited about prescribing medication. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested about um, addressing root cause and teaching Mm -hmm. skills to help people be uh, better prepared for the rest of their lives. And that's what CBTI or cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia does. However, in contrast, for hypersomnia or unexplained hypersomnolence, there is no psychotherapy derivative at this time. Hmm. Um, these individuals, when they receive treatment appropriately, are actually more or less uh, prescribed stimulants that are hmm. often prescribed to people who have narcolepsy or experiencing narcolepsy. Hmm. And narcolepsy is broken down into two types, narcolepsy type 1 and narcolepsy type 2. And uh, they're all kind of sibling conditions to uh, unexplained hypersomnolence. But our understanding of the pathophysiology that leads to the production of the medications for those who are experiencing unexplained hypersomnolence, hypersomnolence is largely driven from narcolepsy type 1. And yet, this is a whole different disorder. And so we're, we're kind of inappropriately, which may be the wrong word, but inappropriately treating individuals at this time. And there really is no approach to reversing the actual condition. And to circle back to your actual comment, Cardin, um, caffeine has, has minimal effects mm-hmm. at best for these individuals. Yeah. You know, when I first started working with them, I thought I knew what sleepy, sleepiness was. Um, And yet, when you actually sit in a room with these individuals and try and have conversations, you recognize the challenges they face in their day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And our normal, you know, two cups of coffee in the morning or caffeine throughout the day isn't going to suffice. So, Mm -hmm. currently, there is an impetus and a need for better treatment strategies. Um, 
and a, a researcher that I have much respect for for how much work they've done to usher in uh, mindfulness-based interventions for insomnia has also started to champion a um, psychotherapy approach for hypersomnia disorders that also include narcolepsy type 1 and type 2 and, and idiopathic hypersomnia or hypersomnolence disorder. And um, his name is Jason Ong, and uh, he's a phenomenal researcher and clinician, and he's created a template for what we're calling cognitive behavioral therapy for hypersomnia. Um, at this time, though, it's really not focused on reducing symptom severity. Hmm. It's really about improving quality of life. So it's looking at these conditions as a chronic treatment-resistant condition. Hmm. Um, and from my perspective, I just don't buy it. You know, largely from what I know about humans and the plasticity we have across life, I generally believe that we can make differential or we can make changes mm -hmm. that alter our physiology and reverse pathology. Mm. And so that's an angle that I'm very passionate about and something that I hope to pursue in my future research uh, is the ability to expand upon this, this emerging cognitive behavioral therapy for hypersomnia to develop interventional strategies that not just improve our well-being and ability to handle these symptoms, but actually attenuate or fully extinguish or omit these symptoms. So, so Jesse, <clears throat> that I, I don't know what the prevalence of of that condition is. I would assume it's it's not something that is is it is well. You tell me how how widely common is that 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 people deal with that. I think on the fortunate standpoint, the word all label is rare, okay. um, but it's not fully understood. That's the challenge here is, is given that we have these two different um, nosologies, the international classification of sleep disorders and the, di um, uh, the, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, we have these two competing nosologies with different diagnostic criteria. Mm -hmm. Depending on which diagnostic criteria you use, we'll have different estimates of the prevalence mm -hmm. in society. And so we don't have a fully formulated understanding of how common it is. It's generally been estimated to be anywhere from 0.001% to 0.3% of the population. So rare, but not trivial. Mm -hmm. And I generally believe that if we had better diagnostic criteria, certainly we'd have a better understanding. Uh, but I actually think that number would be a little bit higher. Sure. Just because we'd have a, a, a you know, an improved ability to assess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I guess kind of where I'm I'm going with that was um, if you're what we're talking about something that is is fairly uncommon, okay, you know, rare, what, what whatever you want to call it. But when you start talking about some of the things that is uh, you, you'd actually say are mainstream, you know, what, what are some of the most common, um, you know, sleep? I, I don't know. I don't want to say sleep disorders, but sleep problems. I mean, you know, I'm sure across the board there is this list of these most commonly you know, people complain about or you hear about the, the most often. And I'm curious just from your perspective, you know, what are they and, and what, what do you, how do you guys address that on a, when you're talking something that afflicts millions? The, certainly the most prominent um, combination of sleep complaints pertains to insomnia. And that's a constellation of symptoms that either captures difficulty falling asleep, uh, so sleep initiation difficulties, um, difficulties with 
frequent awakenings that are often prolonged during the night, uh, so sleep maintenance issues, or waking up earlier than desired, so early morning awakening. So those are the three different types of characteristics that fall into insomnia. And I would say that that's the most common constellation of symptoms. Mm. Now, to be diagnosed with insomnia, you don't have to have all three. In fact, you only have to have one. And if you look at epidemiological research, it indicates that upwards of 35% of our general population at any given time will report at least one insomnia symptom. Hmm. And that is remarkably alarming and really fascinating. And I think it points its finger at the many challenges we experience as members of our modern society with our constant levels of stress, our constant state of sympathetic activation, meaning we're always in fight or flight mode, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to jump between Zoom call to WebEx meeting to going to pick up a child to whatever Mm -hmm. it may be, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And we have no time for rest and relaxation. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time, this is a significant contributor to our issues is the rise of digital technology and the prominence that this has in our lives. And I like to think, you know, Cardin and Blair, the two of you in Montana, that neither one of you have a computer or TV, but that could obviously <laughs> not be the case considering we're doing this podcast right now. Um, but, but that is a uh, key driver of these issues. And then yeah. outside of that, the other really, really, really prominent um, deleterious sleep complaint or sleep issue is obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, um, okay. yep. So sleep disorder breathing can occur for a myriad of issues. And um, when someone has a cessation of breathing, it's most often the case that the airways uh, obstructed in some ways, hence the name obstructive sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. And, and this can lead to people stopping breathing mm. throughout the night upwards of 50 to 60 times an hour. I've seen people upwards truly of 100 times an hour. And this actually leads to a maybe not conscious arousal, oftentimes not conscious arousal, but we can observe it when we actually have you hooked up to what is known as a polysomnography, so a poly, many, somno, sleep, graphy measurement test. We Mm -hmm. put a bunch of wires on you, put you in an artificial environment. Mm -hmm. We can see your brain alert So clearly you're not going to the deeper stages and even more problematic is the the strain it puts on your heart. And then again, the cessation of oxygen to the brain, that is a really, really challenging condition. Um, And so fortunately it's become priority um, from not just research, but also from medicine to early detect and hopefully uh, treat uh, obstructive sleep apnea, but I think those two are the most prominent. And I think recently I, I've started to notice that that nightmares are a bit more on the rise. Hmm. Uh, and so there is a, a nightmare disorder that is actually a diagnostic label. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this may have been more prominent as the pandemic occurred, okay. um, mm-hmm. as people are more stressed and anxious as they're in worried as they go into bed. And one of our main theories as to why nightmares, um, manifest is that it's mood matching so that the mood you take into your sleep is what actually presents during your sleep. Hmm. So if you're stressed, anxious, worried, that's going to lead to probably more negatively charged or scary content in your dreams relative to more pleasing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say definitely insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea are your are your big players, your hard hitters in our sleep field, and um, they certainly keep the sleep centers open. Um, <laughs> from a financial standpoint, that's yeah. great, but yeah. unfortunately, from a societal standpoint, health and functionality, it's it's really unfortunate. Now, so so hyper hypersomnolence is on one end of the spectrum, where insomnia is on the other end of the spectrum. I know you gave a number, and it was at six hundred and sixty. Is that what it was? Minutes over the course of a um, of a of a day of more than that, and then you're you're considered hypnar somnolence. Is that what it is? Uh, that is, is that is one of the diagnostic criteria. Yes. Is, is there what is the the is there similar criteria for in, insomnia? Is there like a certain amount of of, of sleep that you're getting? Um, if you're only getting this much, you're you're di- you can be diagnosed with that. Um, it's a, it's a great question. And, and first I just want to, uh, kind of unpack something else a little bit. This, this complicated Venn diagram between yeah. insomnia and hypersomnia mm-hmm. or hypersomnolence or unexplained hypersomnolence. The, the terminology gets really complicated with, with where we're at too. So I apologize to the listeners, but let's just use the word hypersomnia as this, this clinical disorder where you have unexplained excessive daytime sleepiness that has prolonged sleep duration associated with it. Um, and you have some other uh, additional symptoms such as uh, difficulty transitioning from sleep to wake, something called sleep inertia, where you have this, this uh, impairing brain fog that persists for about 30 minutes after awakening uh, and then an irresistible need to sleep throughout the day. So that's we'll say that's hypersomnia. And then you have an insomnia over there, which insomnia also associates with excessive daytime sleepiness often. So people who have insomnia will often report excessive daytime sleepiness, which is a symptom of hypersomnia, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this constellation. And sometimes when people have insomnia, what they end up doing is spending more time in bed to try and accumulate enough mm-hmm. sleep because mm-hmm. they're like, well, I've only been uh, asleep for six of my 10 hours because I spent two hours trying to fall asleep and mm-hmm. I was awake for two hours during the night. Mm-hmm. And so it can get really challenging from a self-report perspective on how much time they were actually sleeping versus how much time they were actually in bed. Mm-hmm. And so that's, again, one of those issues we had earlier with depression. Um, for a long-standing period of time, persons with hypersomnia were thought to be clinophiles, which is a term that means bed lovers. And so people that would actually be in bed a long period of time, but not actually sleeping long periods of time. And our research showed something different where these individuals actually have high sleep efficiency, meaning that they're sleeping uh, upwards of 90 to 95% of the time that they're actually trying to sleep. Whereas people with insomnia tend to have something that's more in the 70 to 75% range of sleep efficiency. Hmm. Um, So that can be distinguished and it kind of... um, challenges the notion that these individuals are just largely staying in bed with insomnia characteristics. That's now kind of an outdated view. When it comes to your other question um, regarding the actual empirical definition of insomnia in some ways, most of the nosological criteria is self-report and very loose fitting. Okay. So someone can come in and say, I'm having difficulty falling asleep or I'm waking up multiple times during the night and unable to get back to sleep, or I'm waking up two hours earlier than my desired time to wake up. And that will 
um, preempt or just start kind of the insomnia chain. They're basically considered to be someone experiencing insomnia at that time. Mm. From a true behavioral sleep medicine perspective, you like to think of insomnia as if you're having more than 30 minutes of duration for the time that you're actively trying to fall asleep. So you turn off the lights and you've your heads to the pillow. You're not watching TV. You're not actively reading a book. You're consciously trying to fall asleep and it takes you more than 30 minutes. That's a good indicator that you have clinically significant insomnia hmm. uh, from a sleep initiation standpoint. From a sleep maintenance standpoint, that 30-minute criteria also applies. So if you're finding yourself awake for more than 30 minutes throughout your course of sleep, that's a good indicator that you probably have clinical insomnia. Um, the real challenge here is most primary care providers will not ever assess to that detail. Mm, And so they may be prescribing individuals with uh, pharmacological agents that are evidence-based to manage insomnia to a person who may or may not even have insomnia. Mm, Um, And so as a psychologist and I'm sitting here watching that process happen, I just, you know, insert emoji of unhappy face. Mm -hmm. Um, That's basically what I see. So I still think there's much work to be done to distinguish different subtypes of insomnia and personalize the interventions in that manner. So if someone's only experiencing sleep sleep initiation insomnia, we should have a differential set of interventions for those that are experiencing sleep maintenance insomnia. Oh, right, right. And for those that are in the behavioral sleep medicine field, it's kind of understood which interventions in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia you apply to those patient phenotypes. But for those outside of the field, that is not common knowledge. And so that needs to be better disseminated and better clarified in a standardized format. And personally, I'm hopeful that I can bring the same or or myself or some of the great work coming out of Emory uh, when it comes to hypersomnia can do the same to try and maybe subtype elements of unexplained excessive daytime sleepiness or this hypersomnia and try and find better more efficacious interventions for different types of hypersomnia. So Jesse, um, and this, I think this information may be somewhat antiquated, but um, on the, in the vein that, um, you know, like you were saying, some, some doctors will prescribe medications to kind of, to take care of the sleep problem. I remember a, a, a fairly prevalent study a few years ago that talked about <clears throat> quality versus quantity in sleep. And, Simply prescribing medications may get the desired effect as far as sleep, but sleep isn't sleep, is it, Jesse? I mean, there, there's a lot of different types of sleep. And the, the nature of the study was that just because somebody is sleeping does not mean they're resting. It may not be that beneficial. So the, the pharmacological approach may be not um, the cure-all that they thought it you know, at the time. So, so, I mean, what, what is the kind of the, the prevalent thinking now with that? Is that a last resort to, to introduce drugs in there or have they got it dialed in where the drugs actually will reproduce or induce good quality sleep? That's, that's a brilliant point there. Um, and I think you described it well, to be honest, that, um, the sleep is a, a very complicated behavior. And, um, 
it's it's a really important behavior from so many levels and and the function of sleep is still not fully understood but i just want to leave the listeners with this think about the notion this behavior has been preserved across phylogeny of evolution meaning that we don't know of an animal species that doesn't have a sleep-like state Mm -hmm. and so clearly it has to have some Mm -hmm. remarkable function considering the fact that all of us um when we're sleeping are really vulnerable to predation our surrounding environment Mm -hmm. right and so the fact this has survived evolution must mean it's critically important and as we've learned more about sleep as you unpack there there are different stages there are different types of sleep and our understanding of this in my opinion is still in its infancy (laughs) we still have a very crude understanding Mm -hmm. of the differences in electrophysiology and in the brain and how that communicates to the rest of the body the different processes that need to occur whether it's clearing neurotoxins or um, reducing inflammation whatever it may be there are a myriad of of implications for the changes that occur during sleep and as you pointed out these pharmacological agents may induce quote-unquote sleep meaning that when i look at somebody who's under say ambient or something like that Mm -hmm. i would objectively classify that as a stage of sleep Mm -hmm. and to our knowledge at this time depending on who you ask uh, it may be slightly variable but depending on who you ask um, there's anywhere between four to five stages of sleep Um, generally i like to think of it as non-rapid eye movement and rem and then within non-rapid eye movement there are three stages yet some people still maintain there are four stages of non-rapid eye movement sleep Mm -hmm. So largely somebody who's under this pharmacological aid will be in a stage of sleep, but how does that influence their ability to reach the deeper stages? Mm -hmm. And are they missing out on key critical aspects of transitions of sleep? So we could look at whether or not somebody has adequate amounts of slow wave sleep, something known as non-rapid eye movement stage three, Mm -hmm. or whether somebody has adequate amounts of rapid eye movement sleep whatever that means honestly that's a whole different subject that we don't actually have good empirical understanding of what is necessary amounts of these things but mm-hmm. that's a crude global i look at my sleep over a night and i had 20 percent rem sleep okay when did it occur did it occur only in in one long episode hmm. did it occur as it's supposed to where it's you know every 60 to 90 minutes or so and it occurs for five to 15 minutes and those periods become longer across the night. Mm-hmm. And so we need a better understanding of how these things are, are manipulating, not just the type of sleep, but the characteristics of these types of sleep when they're occurring. Um, are they overriding other aspects of sleep, things along those lines. And uh, to really circle back to your question, I think there is consensus among the field that these things are not optimal for treating the sleep complaints we have when it comes to um, enhancing the sleep quality we want, mm-hmm. the type of sleep we want. But it's the best we have right now. And I generally think that as we move forward as a field, the really interesting area of innovation is going to come from the integration of this commercial domain. And some of the products that are coming out there which come to optimizing sleep through sensory stimuli. 
mm-hmm. things like auditory tones that can mm-hmm. be played in certain frequencies that <laughs> may be able to induce certain types of sleep um, and may lead to better restfulness and quality of sleep across the night. Do, do okay. you think that the, the technology is advancing to a state where they're they're helpful? I mean, are, are you are you seeing that some of this technology that's emerging is actually being um, efficient and productive? I think it's close. Um, I think the theory is there. It's understood that we're really most modifiable during our sleep state through mm-hmm. auditory tones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's been the direction forward. And it makes sense similar to how people are trying to uh, enhance their wakeful states through things like binaural beats uh, or some like alpha-based um, stimulation mm. that we can potentially increase things like delta waves, which is a um, specific frequency of electrophysiology that occurs during sleep that's associated with more restful sleep, that we can potentially induce that. And there are certain companies out there that purport the ability to do that at this time. Um, to my knowledge, the literature does not support their claims, mm. and it's unclear how translatable this will be to more real-world application and clinical yeah. populations, mm-hmm. uh, but I think we're definitely getting there. Mm. Uh, and our ability to measure sleep in the natural environment through these new-age technologies, whether they're wearables, things like fitness activity trackers or rings uh, or headgear that can measure electrophysiology in the brain or nearables, which are things that kind of sit uh, uh, close to you and, and monitor your physiology through more radar-based technology or microphones mm-hmm. or things along those lines, will provide the information that can then inform the technology mm-hmm. to alter somebody's sleep at different times. So I think we're close. I don't think we're there yet. Um, If I gave an optimist perspective, I think in five years, something that is truly capable, that's evidence-backed, not that a company is saying that's evidence-backed, but that science itself is saying that's evidence-backed, will lead to sleep enhancement. Um, And realistically, definitely within the next 10 years, this, this field of commercially available sleep technology, whether it's trackers or enhancers, um, is ever growing uh, and impossible to keep up with from a research perspective. Mm-hmm. But I'm impressed by what they're doing. I love that they're prioritizing sleep health. And I, I generally am optimistic that within the next 10 years, we're going to have some sort of really, for lack of a better term, wonky setup in our bedroom environment that has kind of a home station that's monitoring our sleep that they then alter the mm-hmm. surrounding ambient mm-hmm. environment, whether it's temperature or light or whatever it may be, to induce better stages of sleep or reverse right. pathology. Wow, that's, right. fascinating. that's and, fascinating. And and actually, I mean, that's already a thing, though. I mean, not on a large scale, but I mean, that already exists, correct, Jesse? I mean, they 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 are recreating these types of environments to induce sleep, correct? Absolutely. The the technology is there. It's just the degree to which the technology works, right? right? Gotcha. Uh, and that's not fully clear at this time. Um, and for who it'll work for is another question. That's always a question when it comes to interventions. Sure. Um, and one of my frustrations with how we approach the validation of treatments is we say that this led to a reduction in sleep latency for 10 minutes for a certain individual. 
or for for this sample of people. But maybe it was ten of those individuals that drove the effects, whereas twenty other individuals saw no effects. Mm-hmm. So it now needs to become for who is this actually going to work for? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think the the future is very promising. I'm just not ready to kind of christen the existing technology as right. the panacea that's going to save right. sleep. And, and speaking of that technology, I, I can't help because I'm, you know, hearing you describe stages of sleep and the just the, the pure complexity of it, it makes it hard for me to imagine that the the Garmin watch that I'm wearing on my wrist is is a, is effectively tracking my sleep at night. Um, is, is that, do, do you find they're efficient? Is there um, efficacy in, in what the, the output is from these wearables? Uh, or, are they getting close or, or where are they at? Do you think the technology right now? It's a, it's a very promising um, kind of domain at this current moment. And, and just for the listeners, um, that's kind of what I like to describe as my, my dirty my dirty pleasure of sleep research. Um, I've kind of just serendipitously found myself in this wearable sleep technology game. Um, so I've actually published three validations or evaluations of the capabilities of consumer wearable uh, devices. Um, I've evaluated a couple Fitbits and then one that's now obsolete at this time, a, a Jawbone uh, up device. And um, I've also published a review on this topic as well. And um, my belief that is that most of the modern devices. Um, so your Garmin kind of falls into that category. I preface that with hesitation, which I'll, I'll, sit, uh, I'll talk more about in a second. But most of these modern devices that are multi-sensory, meaning that they're not just using movement to estimate your sleep, but they're also using heart rate mm-hmm. as well. Most mm-hmm. of those modern devices mm-hmm. have those capabilities, mm-hmm. are really decent um, at estimating sleep duration and also providing a reasonable depiction of your um, kind of variability in your sleep time. So the time you go to bed and the time you wake up. I think they're very good at that, uh, or at least the empirical evidence supports that. When it comes to, so we think about that as quantifying sleep. How good are they at actually estimating the amount of time you are asleep? Right. But the other question becomes, how good are they at actually classifying sleep? Mm-hmm. So I'll circle back to the Jawbone Up 3, which was um, the second device that I ever evaluated. And it was the first multi-sensory device on the market. Um, and this device was the first to purport the ability to classify sleep into light, deep, and REM. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's really important to try and find a way to habitually measure sleep that classifies REM because that's a way that we can distinguish narcolepsy type 1 from other forms of unexplained excessive daytime sleepiness. Mm -hmm. So it would have a very important utility for the clinical realm if this device worked well. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, that device, when measured against the gold standard polysomnography, only accurately assessed REM sleep about 30% of the time. And when it came to light sleep and deep sleep, it was a little bit better around the 40 to 50% range. So the early devices there were really, really, really poor at identifying and classifying sleep stages relative to our gold standard. But the more modern devices have actually improved. 
And it's unclear if that's due to changes in hardware or if that's changes in software, whether it's the algorithms or some sort of improvement in the actual hardware that's in the device itself. But neither here nor there, more or less nowadays, when it comes to light, deep, and REM sleep, as they describe it, um, and light sleep roughly translates into non-REM 1 and non-REM 2, whereas deep sleep is non-REM 3, and then your REM sleep is REM sleep. Um, but generally, they're about 60 to 75% accuracy. Oh, wow. um, so they're getting better, mm-hmm. but I don't want people to change their lives based on the classification outputs from these devices. Right, right, right. It's it's useful information, but not something that you should be like, oh, well, I ate a bratwurst at 3 p.m. last night, and my REM sleep's now up 3%. (laughs) I'm going to have a bratwurst at 3 uh, 3 p.m. every day. That's just just not where we're at, right? Um, So these devices at this time are best served to estimate your sleep duration and give a sense of the regularity of sleep. And the real challenge, to be honest, is that they're performing comparably or at times even better than what's known as an actigraph, which is a clinically utilized device. It's a wrist-worn device that basically Mm -hmm. uses motion and acceleration to estimate sleep versus wake. And these modern commercially available devices have demonstrated better ability to estimate sleep duration than our Mm. clinically utilized devices. Mm. However, there are many barriers that inhibit the clinical domain from adapting these commercially available devices despite despite the fact that they're very useful. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be the real change going forward is is how do we uh, address these complicating barriers so that these devices, which are almost ubiquitous across society, I, I would, you know, arbitrarily estimate that like 50 to 60% of the population has something that's track that's capable of tracking their sleep at this point. Mm-hmm. How can we get that data and how can a primary care provider or a uh, sleep provider specialist utilize that data? Right mm-hmm. now, the clinical guidelines are you cannot make a diagnosis from it. Mm-hmm. It can enhance the patient experience, whatever that means. But you cannot make a clinical diagnosis from it. Um, And I'm sitting here being like, well, they work just as well as our clinically utilized devices for sleep duration. And I want to measure sleep duration for excessively sleepy people. So let's get to a point where that works. And, you know, Cardin, unfortunately, um, there was a really good paper out recently, um, Chinoy et al., uh, C-H-I-N-O-Y, Uh, published in 2020 that evaluated seven of the most modern commercially available devices. And one of them was in fact, um, I believe actually two of them were a Garmin, um, Mm -hmm. different models. And the Garmin is, is probably the most divergent in its estimation abilities from the gold standard, meaning it does the worst compared to the other devices that were assessed. Um, And so it's not bad per se relative to say like a clinical actigraph, but it's worse than some of the other devices. Well, so, I've been changing my whole yeah. life patterns around this. <laughs> the outputs on this thing. I've been eating a bratwurst at every day at three o'clock because of this there thing. Oh, great, great. Now I can throw that little notion out the window. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say that eating a bratwurst at 3 p.m. is bad behavior. Uh, I, personally, I think it's a great way to enhance happiness. Yeah. But I, I don't think you should be deriving that behavioral uh, choice based on your Garmin's output. Yeah. So, so, um, Jesse, it's time for a case study. 
Okay. Uh, are, you, are you ready? A case I'll do study. my best. Yes. All right. A, uh, a very healthy youngish man uh, started uh, having snoring issues. Young, youngish to older. Like, young, like, I would say, I would say, to, I would say is, is middle age. I wouldn't age say middle age. Thing. No, no. I would go middle age. <laughs> middle young age. No. Hey, let's, for let's one take thing, that up is, a little bit. Hey, if this hey, is going to be a case study, it has to be accorate, my friend. You know, you're what about anonymity? for failure. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Jesse. Anyway, Jesse, this fictitious person. Uh, onset, sudden onset of snoring. Okay. Um, and this uh, said snorer is married. And uh, said Snore's wife um, has contemplated divorce over this. So introduction of a white noise machine. Actually, two things have happened, okay? A white noise machine to block out said snoring and the introduction of mouth tape or lip tape, okay? Um, so in the realm of, and this is a massively common problem, right? You know, snoring. And in, in the interruption, and now we're now we're bringing in a another party, right? A spouse, a partner, whatever you want it, and somebody else is being affected by this, right? So in this case study, and I will admit, Carden, it is I, it is I with the sleep snoring, yeah, the, the middle aged youngish man, <laughs> the, the middle aged youngish man, but this was completely. Um, it was idiopathic. There, there was no, I have never snored before. I'm not overweight. Um, I exercise and it was something, and of course, you know, I, I, I wouldn't know, but my wife would. And this was something that was a very sudden onset. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's these, like I said, the, the white noise machine. I, I read about the taping of, you know, you put tape across your lips and it, it helps keep your mouth shut. And it does help. It, it hasn't completely cured the problem. But, you know, when you're talking about something like this that is so massively common, right? And, and you know, people are dealing with this and they're, they're struggling to find the, the best thing to do or the most effective thing to do. From, from a, a psychological standpoint and a, and a sleep expert, you know, where do you weigh in on this? On, on again, something that is so prevalent. Well, I must say, first, before diving into that, uh, Blair, I just applaud you for for the bravery <laughs> to, to pull back the curtain um, well. and and implicating snoring uh, with yourself. I, I just I am astounded by your bravery on well, this front. You know and, what? Yes, um, if I the can is, as an example for others, Jesse, I, you know. I, <laughs> I appreciate you shouldering that load. It's all for science. Yeah, it's all for science. Um, Yeah. So, so snoring itself is not inherently good or bad, right? Um, Snoring can be an indicator that there might be sleep disordered breathing. Um, So, oftentimes we are most susceptible to snoring when we're laying on our back, or at times when we've, uh, you know. And indulged a little bit and, and drank some alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll describe a couple reasons why that's the case. So we have a um, an anatomical structure known as the uvula. It's a flap in our airway. Mm-hmm. And so when you're laying on your back, this this uvula is being is being pushed down um, by gravity. Gravity gets us all right. Um, and so it closes the airway, which um, inhibits your ability to breathe as effectively, which often leads to the snoring that we hear. So the easiest, the most simplest approach oftentimes is to find a way to force side sleeping. 
Um, so there are certain homemade devices where you can um, actually card and you can you can provide one of these to to Blair, um, one of your your triathlon biking uniforms, your jerseys, oh, nice. uh, yeah. and you can you you can actually <laughs> stick a tennis ball right in the back there. And so when you're laying on your back, that that actually turns you onto your side. Oh, um, okay. And so you're less likely to have that uvula disturbance, and that often can can reduce the common snoring. Mm-hmm. Again, if alcohol is present, and this is a really debilitating situation for your um, important interpersonal relationship, your intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, then you might want to consider a behavioral change on that front as alcohol relaxes the muscles in our airway and inhibits the ability for us to keep our airway open and have proper breathing during sleep. Mm-hmm. So those are two of the kind of low-hanging fruit when it comes to addressing snoring that may not be clinical sleep disorder breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that said, Blair, as, as we do get older, you know, we check off a risk factor box. So I, I have only recently met you, and I will not assume <laughs> your age based on any of the comments we've had so far. And I don't uh-huh. want you to answer this question, but nope. one of the risk factors that we look for in the clinical realm is is greater than 50 years of age mm. and also mm. being male. So we check, I think, the mailbox. I can't assume, and I apologize if I incorrectly assumed identity, but we check the the mailbox here of a risk factor. Check. And, mm-hmm. and so then it becomes, what other risk factors do we have? And if we start accumulating risk factors I think it's worthwhile to explore um, an actual screening for obstructive sleep apnea. Right. Um, so they do make these novel devices now or these kind of widespread home sleep apnea test devices. Um, and they can actually be um, acquired without going through a tertiary sleep center. Oftentimes a primary care provider can um, place an order for this to be um, assessed. Mm-hmm. And insurance is really happy about this because home sleep apnea tests are much less expensive than in laboratory mm, um, studies. And exactly, no, yes, fully no. comprehensive. Yes. So you're going to trade off here with your validity of assessment. The home sleep apnea tests uh, can be less reliable and less accurate, uh, but you get to do it from the comfort of your home and not spending time in a, in a artificial environment, which you may want to do depending on how many kids you have in your household. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, let let but, me go somewhere to sleep. Just test. Yeah, exactly. This is, <laughs> I'm going to be assessed once care. a week. This sounds yeah. great. No, no, no kidding. I'm, I'm still having sleep issues. I better go back to that sleep center. <laughs> exactly. I think I, you know, you just keep pulling your mask off during the night when you're in the <laughs> yeah. sleep center and, uh, you know, you just keep coming back every week. Yes. We might see a pattern of behavior and suggest <laughs> otherwise, but uh, I understand where you're coming from. It's it's not something to quote unquote, and this is no pun intended. Sleep on sleep apnea is is a real serious condition, and if that becomes something of a concern, I, I recommend definitely ruling it out. Right. Okay. And right. just just uh, accomplishing that. And if if that is it is present, then definitely seeking treatment. And it took me about five plus years or so of convincing my father that I want him to live five to ten years longer before right. he actually started to use the CPAP machine. Um, and his anecdote after started to use it was, I never thought sleep could be this way. Right. And yeah. so uh, in my clinical training, I do often use that anecdote with my father's consent uh, to clients because that's obviously a resistance. It's this novel thing you're putting on your face. How am I supposed to sleep with it? Mm-hmm. Right. There's no way, but it works really well. And I yeah. think we're going to have more novel treatments soon. 
It, um, it's it's got to change people's lives too, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about people based on your uh, description that sometimes are waking up 60 plus to 100 plus times in an hour. I mean, are, are does it? Do you see that kind of result that people feel like their lives have been changed? Absolutely. Um, libido, motivation, um, vigilance. It, it the, the list is endless. Mood. All this stuff is interconnected to our ability to sleep at night. And when you're having these you know, on a minimal scale, 15 arousals per hour and upwards of a hundred, there's just no way that you're going to be able to function optimally the next day. And your life is just revolutionized. Mm -hmm. It's in some ways, and this is a really poor analogy, but someone who's in some ways blind and then is provided sight, you know, life is entirely different. And again, Mm -hmm. I apologize out there for the insensitivity of my comment, but in some ways that's what happens. You know, you have this new perspective and, and new appreciation for life and living. Uh, and that's the goal of sleep is to enhance our wakefulness. Um, and that's often how I try and motivate people is to find something in their life and their wakefulness that can be enhanced by their sleep so that they prioritize healthy sleep behaviors. Absolutely. Now, Blair, the other side of it that I want to get to is perhaps hopefully not a, not a legal divorce. Um, and I don't <laughs> like this term, but... But there's a term being thrown around <laughs> of a sleep divorce or a sleep separation. Oh, yeah. And I, and I want to yeah. normalize this because I think it is really important and something that I've even discussed with my partner um, at times. And we have acute sleep separations oftentimes when I may indulge a little too much and then my snoring comes out and mm-hmm. I get mm-hmm. thrust out of the bedroom, right? Mm-hmm. right but yeah. the notion of having separate sleep environments and prioritizing or the ability to adopt this potentially abnormal or non-traditional approach to a relationship so that you prioritize the time you have together in your wakeful states. Mm. Because if neither one of you are sleeping well, then your mood's going to suck. Right. You're going to be more irritable. Yeah. You're not even yeah. going to want to have intimacy with one another because your libido is right. going to be down. Right. So why even spend the time together in bed if you're not going to utilize it to the most benefit possible, right? Yeah, that, that's so really interesting, yeah. If the resources are available, there's no shame at all or guilt uh, or blame to having separate bedrooms. In fact, it may be a more optimal way for partnership. Right. Mm. No, I actually I'm I'm glad you brought that up. And and I don't I don't think we're there yet. And and here's mm. the thing, I'll I'll just kind of you know, summarize my my personal situation. Um, I'm not a drinker. And this, this almost 100% in my mind is a body position. It is almost 100% when I'm on my back. Yeah. And, I, you know, this is an interesting thing when you were talking about the, the uvula is, you know, I never thought about this in, literally until I was listening to you talk. But the fact that as a younger man, I never, I, I would <laughs> assume I've slept the same, you know, all my, all my life, did not snore. Now I'm starting to, it almost makes you think that, is there a, is there a laxity in the uvula? Has it, has it elongated? You know, I mean, as we age, is that a natural part? You know, that, I mean, that would certainly explain the sudden onset sort of, um, and it would also, uh, explain that as we age, that the snoring becomes kind of a natural part of, you know, uh, of, you know, living, I guess. I mean, is that, is that factual or am I making that up? Honestly, that's a remarkably impressive research hypothesis. And a fascinating, <laughs> honestly, it's a fascinating. I'm yeah, just sitting here being like, yeah. that's a great question. I honestly do not know if there are 
alterations in either the anatomy surrounding it or uh, associated with the uvula or the functionality of it. Maybe, you know, as we, we do know that across our life, uh, our bodies prioritize different things, whether it's the development of certain aspects of the brain early on um, to just different needs later on in life. Absolutely. And perhaps, perhaps there is an alteration anatomically or perhaps there is an alteration in the prioritization of resources to that area of the body mm -hmm. as we age. Again, the ability to live 50 years old, 60 years old, 70 years old is relatively new in the evolutionary pipeline. Mm. So we're kind of dealing with uncharted waters right now. And I think that's a really fascinating question that should be explored. Well, I mean, it just, it stands to reason. And again, my background being a, a physiology guy is the, the whole body, as we age, there's a lot of different, you know, there's adjustments and, and collagen breakdown, there's, you know, smooth, everything starts to kind of relax, whether it's gravity fed or if it's just the tissue, you know, itself starts to lose its, its plasticity mm -hmm. and elasticity mm -hmm. and things like that. So, I mean, you know, I, cause I've thought about it. I thought I am physically a smaller person than I used to be. You know, when I was younger, I was, I was a weightlifter. I was a very big person, you know, and I've lost weight and, and stay trim. And, and it just, you know, when you're trying to really come up with a rational explanation of what changed. And like I said, I don't drink. I, I mean, I'll have a beer occasionally. I like a good beer, but that's not the root cause of this. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as sleep positions, yeah, I do sleep on my back, but I've always slept on my back. So in my mind, I'm going, okay, what, what changed? And I, I literally thought physiologically, was there, is there some aspect of aging? And that's where I came up on the, you know, the idea. And like I said, when you were talking, I just thinking about the uvula, you know, specifically, is there just this relaxation of that, you know, of the back of the throat? And so I don't know, uh, you know, you're, Hey, you're the, you're the scientist, you know, I, I want to see some, some, <laughs> I want to see some studies. I will be well, a lab I, rat. I think Blair, this is just a good time to bring up in, in general that, at your age, you're you're, you're going to be seeing changes. <laughs> there will be changes, Blair. And, uh, uh, I'm, I'm just glad that you're exploring I've those. That twilight. I've reached that twilight. <laughs> and sometimes they make little blue pills for it, and sometimes <laughs> they don't. You know, hey, hey, are you talking ambient? Is that ambient? <laughs> now, listen. I'm gonna. I, I gotta. I gotta make a statement There's here. No As a yeah, matter of pride, <laughs> I have never dabbled in the blue pills, okay, nor yeah. do I. Need do. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I know we. I did want to say real thing, one thing, real quick, Please Blair. Do. Please, as do. as you came more of uh, kind of the characterization to your story, I almost wonder if you've done too good for your body, in the sense that perhaps some beneficial changes that you've made have led you to be able to um, reach REM sleep more often and for more consistent time. And when we have rapid eye movement sleep, we experience a paralysis of our muscles, or the vast majority of us do. Some don't, and it's called REM behavior disorder, and they actually mm -hmm. act out their dreams. But maybe you're actually reaching this deeper stage more often than you were previously in, in other unhealthier stages of your life. I don't know your history. Mm -hmm. And thus, you have a greater propensity for snoring now mm -hmm. in the same position you were because you're in the state that would produce more snoring. Okay, that that is interesting because if my wife was here, she would tell you, I've become the person that I'm out. When I'm out, I'm out. Like she'll be talking to me mid-sentence. We will be talking and the next thing you know, she looks over and I'm 
I'm comatose, right? I think that I think you're onto something. I think it's very possible because I I don't usually wake up unrested. I mean, you know, I think I would say normal, right? Um, and and being a trainer of athletes and and being a former athlete myself, I've always understood the importance of sleep, and I've always emphasized it with the the athletes that I work with. I, I'm huge about sleep and the importance of sleep. Um, but you know, I don't really suffer the the, the kind of the stereotypical ill effects like wake up groggy. I mean, I'm a, a cardinal tell you, I'm, I'm a goer. I mean, I'm going all the time and I, I have a lot of energy typically, but that's one thing that my wife even lately, and we've been married for 30 years, she's acknowledged that, you know, you're out, you know, your hit, your head hits the pillow, you're out. And so maybe you're onto something, Jesse. I think that seems reasonable. And I guess the, the angle then becomes become less healthy. Yeah. <laughs> Bingo, well, I kind of like what we were talking about that, beforehand yeah. with the with the ultra marathons and stuff, you know, something that, you know, something that starts out as this healthful, you know, uh, decision in 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 an act. I mean, it goes full circle maybe, I don't know, maybe it is something yeah. that's that's happened. That that's very intriguing to me your question. Yeah, no, I think it's a, a reasonable hypothesis and certainly the answer is not to become less healthy and the answer is to try and find an appropriate alteration for your sleeping position. Um, and then if needed, um, you know, if it's not having deleterious effects for your well-being and your functionality, and we've ruled out sleep apnea, and it truly is just common snoring, then the consideration of, of separate sleeping environments, uh, I think, is a really, really um, respectable, I think is the right word, sure. um, uh, behavioral decision in a partnership. Yeah, no, I agree. I actually, I do. I, I think, in all fairness, because because I, a quick story. I took a guy, a friend of mine. We, I had to go to a show in Indianapolis. We'd never traveled together before ever, and he he asked if he could go along. I said sure. First question I asked him: Do you snore? He says, Oh no, no, I don't snore at all. Okay, fast forward. I'm throwing pillows at him because he is snoring so bad. So I that one instance showed me personally how disruptive it is to to be with a snore. So I, I really do emphasize, em, empathize with my wife. And I really have taken this seriously. Like I said, I'm, I'm not joking. I do, I've put tape on my lips and I've tried, you know, what I can because I feel bad because, you know, I'm the one causing it. So I, I mm -hmm. completely agree with what you're saying. And, and I will, actually we'll talk about it because. Oh, I and I, I well. felt that guilt the other night. With, with my partner where I disrupted her sleep mm -hmm. and it, it, it hurts. And, you know, I'm proud of myself to have that, you know, sympathy and, and to be able to experience emotions that says something about me instead of being, you know, uh, experiencing psychopathy. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but I don't want that, especially with someone I really right. care about. Right. Uh, so then it becomes, what can I do about it? I don't think the tape lips is the best approach Blair. Um, but I'm, I'm getting a pretty funny visual in, in my mind with yeah. that. Um, I, I do no, think, I think, you know, I think you should keep doing it, Jesse. Yeah. And, <laughs> Maybe. Try it. and actually as a good test group, try it in wakefulness. Yeah. During the podcast. Is that, yeah. is that what you're going yeah, for? There's Carden? a couple of different times. Yeah. I think that you should just give it a try and see if, uh, see if it works. Ah, Carden, Carden, Adolescence. Uh, well, I, I, yeah, you know, and, and like I said, that was a, that was not an easy thing. Cause I, I read about it. There actually a guy wrote a book called breathe and I don't know if you've ever uh, heard about it or read it. And it was, uh, I haven't read the book. It was, it was told to me secondhand. I read, 
information about it. And anyway, he he talks about the importance of breathing, and it was something they talked. And actually, it wasn't so much a snoring remedy. It, that was secondary. It was to promote people to breathe through their nose, which physiologically, there's a lot of benefits versus mouth breathing. So the the really, the aim with this, Jesse, was not to cure snoring. It was to enhance nose breathing, na- nasal breathing, right? A side effect happened to be that it had a, a beneficial effect on a lot of people snoring. So it was kind of one of those, they weren't really aiming for that, but that's what happened kind of a thing. So, Well, Jesse, I think that we could talk about Blair and his seat sleep problems pretty much um, for the rest of the episode. But, um, you know, it is uh, our favorite time of the episode, which is um, the monkey moment. So um, the monkey moment. if you would, um, please, we do ask our guests to <laughs> do their best um, monkey imitation and as an introduction to the monkey moment. So not to put you on the spot, but if you could, please, Jesse, your best monkey imitation for the monkey moment. I have to admit that that's, I, I feel like I say this every episode, but that has to be one of our best, right, Blair? I mean, it, for sure, it has to I, be one no, of our best. You know what? I, I love the pause for a second. Yes, I love that. I wasn't sure. Did he, did he get cold feet? Did the, uh, the, the, the monkey run away? And then, then he blasted and then he it. That was in. awesome. It was great. Um, it was perfect. Uh, no, I so, thought about leaving the podcast uh, at that moment. That just a mic uh, drop. Instead, I, yeah, I channeled my inner breath work and then found the, the diaphragm nice, to deliver. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so oh, uh, Jesse, I, I don't know if you know this about us, but uh, Blair and I um, have a bit of a, um, a belief and a following of ufo sightings and we've asked a lot of alien questions um we've had a lot of alien um, conversations so um here here's the one of the the base questions we ask people onto the show so you're um say for example you're out on a long run and you find yourself in a solitary place and out in front of you you do see lights from the sky as they um descend and actually land in front of you and you see it is a ufo the door opens up and an alien um, you, you know, you're probably your typical looking alien, however that would be, comes out and says, Jesse, I, I'm giving you this opportunity to, to come with us and see um, the universe. Now, I've asked many, this questions many times, so there's many caveats <laughs> that I have to give to it. So this is in a, a totally like a peaceful type approach. You can sense from the alien that this is in, this is in peace. And what they are asking to say, come with us and come see the universe. Are you going or are you staying? Well, this is a fast. I absolutely love the prompt, first of all, Cardin. And uh, (laughs) I think it's a timely conversation uh, given some of the information that's now being released. And also, I just recently listened to Neil deGrasse Tyson and Joe Rogan hash this out a little bit, too, in some ways. So I am in the know a little bit on on what is going on. And um, I personally, I think... do I, I guess the, you know, to add another, another caveat to your um, game here, am I able to inform my family that no, I'm okay, leaving? So, great question. We've had that. <laughs> you, you can't, you can't tell them, but you will return in three years. Okay. Well, here was, I, I appreciate that. Here's what I got anyways. <laughs> um, so, so I am in the belief it's not definitive um, because this is, this is certainly uncharted territory that alien life form may be in fact just the future of human evolution 
Um, mm-hmm. So, in fact, I may have the ability to go with this uh, benevolent uh, extraterrestrial or more advanced human creature and then return at the same point in time that I currently left with them at. So I am totally down. I'm jumping off. Yes, you're going. Yes, <laughs> we got it. So that's my camp. Blair is a more of a, eh, I don't know. I got stuff to do around the house type of camp. Okay. But okay. In my defense, Jesse, Carden has elaborated this whole scenario <laughs> well, greatly to, since every, this started. Every time I ask it, because people go, now wait when a this, second. When this now started, wait. Jesse, it was a UFO lands. You getting on or not? <laughs> That's that's how it started. Like, okay. I'd like to, but I was, I'm like in the middle of working on stuff, and I, don't I got know. a lot of questions about that. It's like, okay, is this a friendly encounter? And so it was because of me. They had to add all these caveats, you know. Caveats. Okay, okay. And I will admit that every time school. we ask the question, the 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 person always goes, "Okay, now what if?" So you're right. There has been yes. much evolution to this question. Yes. But either way, Jesse's yes. on the good side. He is Jesse so is because we've had bon voyage. people that are like, nah, I'm staying home. I'm not good. I'm not doing it. I would like to point out that I didn't ask for the ability to get approval from my family, just that I could inform them. <laughs> just to uh, let them know. That is. That's yeah. an important caveat. That's great. Yeah. Car- Carden did not ask that. He did no. not make that request. No. He was like, adios. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> see you later. In three years, they'll respect the decision. Yes. Well, I, uh, you know, I caught some of the, the, the exchange with Rogan and, and DeGrasse Tyson that you're talking about. And it was very interesting. Uh, Neil DeGrasse Tyson is kind of a, an, an anomaly to me because he's very progressive in so many things, but boy, when it comes to aliens and UFOs, he's, he doesn't really budge, does he? No, that was fascinating. Wasn't it? It wasn't even like giving any sort of, uh, suspicion or, or opening for it at all. Um, and I do align with some of his perspectives uh, but just the the notion of someone who understands the vastness of the universe and how um kind of uh spontaneous life can can formulate uh and given mm-hmm. the infinite amount of resources out there uh from my perspective it just seems to be a given so i was very i've been very surprised by uh we'll say uh neil Grass tyson's take on that front yeah. You know, and, and I don't know if you knew this, but he's also a reformed simulation theory believer, mm. right? He used to believe in the simulation theory and also believe that we would indeed buy, you know, the, the math that we would be in a simulation. He has since changed his mind, you know, and, you know, he's obviously a brilliant guy, but a lot of that's all hypothetical. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, when, when I heard him talk about the simulation theory, he gives a lot of thought to whatever he talks about, but, but he's, you know, he's not immune from indecision as well. How could you not go back and forth? I mean, doubts arise that math <laughs> is what it is, but the, the fact that we're all in a simulation, like, yeah, I bet there's some <laughs> waffling on the decision there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, as much as I even buy into the fact that we're in a simulation, who wants to be in a simulation? Yeah, I agree. Come on. Yeah, yeah I, I can't I get know. myself to believe it for sure. I know. Yeah. I know. 
Well, um, well, listen, I, I just want to extend a very warm thank you, um, Jesse, for you to come on. This has been a lot of it, fun it and, and very informative. I mean, yep. it, it's the perfect blend of entertainment and also that you, you just you have so much knowledge to share. And it's it's pertinent knowledge. You know, this isn't just stuff that won't do any. You know, this this is the kind of stuff that can actually really help yep, people. So, sure. and I, so and I thank like you. We've only scratched the surface, too. So, I mean, you have to come back. I mean, it's a given. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, you, you must. Well, I, I must say uh, to the two of you, Cardin and Blair, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I truly appreciate the opportunity to come chat with the, the two of you. It felt more just, you know, a, a friendly conversation than anything else. And I, I really hope that the listeners got something out of it. And uh, I've been really impressed by the, your ability to carry this conversation and uh, have really enjoyed it. Uh, and I appreciate your perspectives and also the bantering. Um, that's, that's something that, um, <laughs> that's what we do best. Yep, that's it mean, it means, the start of the whole thing. <laughs> it means a lot to me. You know, when I saw the name pondering monkeys podcast, I wasn't sure. And, uh, truly it's, it's the bantering monkeys podcast. And I, I absolutely appreciate <laughs> it. I align with it. And I'd be happy to come on at any point to, uh, talk about sleep or, uh, psychology in the future. Actually, actually, I think Cardin, you know, he, he just gels with us. He just needs to come on back on period just for fun. <laughs> just, just as a co-host. Absolutely. It, it, you know, a lot of times what we'll do, yeah, Jesse, a lot of times, we, you know, we, we will just kind of find a topic that we just want to talk about. You know, we don't have a guest or anything so like that. So if you're game and if you like this stuff, we'll have you back for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, uh, well, pleasure. it was great. Well, I appreciate the kind words. I, I feel the same. And um, you have my contact information at this point. As long as the listeners find me um, enjoyable to a certain degree, <laughs> oh, I'd be oh, happy to come back on. We have fun. And, and subscribers have gone from 110 to 109. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I see them slowly dropping. Look at that. <laughs> well, no, we'll definitely get together again. So, um, again, thank you very much for your time. And, Cardin, until next time. Until next time, Blair. Good night, Cardinal. Good night.